Take your Bible, if you would, and join me today in Acts chapter number two. Acts chapter number two. The history of the church is quite a profound history. It's that which we see the good hand of God overseeing, protecting, providing all along its journey. And when we start to look back at some of the history of the church, we start to find those things that not only did the church emphasize, but those things that the church emphasized because God also, of course, was the, the, the originator of the emphasis. So let's look at one of those things that the church recognized and emphasized because of the emphasis, the priority that God placed on it. It was the Baptist Confession of 1677 that said the following, saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. Now those are important words. They're words that again we reiterate that said bound to maintain and holy fellowship in the worship of God. Now I would submit that the only way to maintain this holy fellowship in the worship of God is when we begin to understand the ramifications of what is required when God's church assembles. Last week, we began a mini-series that we titled Assembly Required, Understanding the Fellowship of the Saints. And we began by, by addressing the fellowship of the gospel. There was something that, that originates, it's central to, foundational for the fellowship of the saints, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we're gonna take that assembly required idea another step further, and we're going to address what we'll refer to as the communion of the saints. Your Bibles are open right now to Acts chapter two. Let's look at our text today. It's Acts chapter two, verses 41 and 42. As we, can, as we consider this idea of assembly required, the communion of the saints. Acts two, beginning in verse number 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. As we looked at last week, our fellowship, of course, begins in the gospel. And I might add, that's the starting point for every believer. And while the ramifications of the gospel are profound, it is really just the starting point, the doorway. It's the entry point into the Christian life. It's where our fellowship with the Savior begins. Now, to be clear, to be added to the church, as we're going to read in verse number 47, a person was of necessity um, um, already checking two of the essentials for fellowshipping with the church. And that is they had to first be saved and then following that they had to be baptized. So those are not negotiable. Those are not like, oh, salvation would be a good thing before you enter into the fellowship of the church. No, it's an absolute essential. And then we oftentimes talk about that next step of obedience after salvation. And did you notice the priority that scripture makes on this? He says, okay, th those that were saved were 
baptized. It's not like those that were saved considered. Those that were saved thought upon. Those that were saved made a decision if they would or weren't. The Bible just makes it rather obvious that those people who were saved, which does tell us that baptism is not a requirement of salvation. It's just the step of obedience after salvation. Those that were saved followed the Lord in what we refer to as believer's baptism. So after their salvation and baptism, what did their lives look like? Now, if you're not saved and you're here today or you're within the sound of my voice, before you to ever have true fellowship with the Savior and then with his revealed assembled body here on earth, my encouragement for you is today, trust Christ as your Savior. When we talk about the the good news, it's for you. This, This wonderful news that you who are lost can be found. There's one searching for you. He's pursuing you right now with the best news you've ever heard in all your life. The greatest sin debt that you could ever incur is causing separation from a holy God. And Jesus died to satisfy the just requirements of a holy God, the perfect sacrifice. So a person who recognizes that Jesus' death burial and resurrection guarantee for me a gift of of unparalleled worth and I can have it by only accepting I can't work for I can't earn I can't pay in any way shape or form I simply have to receive and I do so by believing have you believed yet on the person of Jesus Christ if not may today be your day of salvation Some of you'd say, well, I've already done that. I am saved, saved from my sin, saved from the consequence of my sin, which is eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. I'm saved. Well, wonderful. Have you taken the next step? They were saved and baptized. Have you taken the next step of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ? Because that's what baptism is. It's a means by which we can declare openly that we have in fact privately, personally trusted Christ. Well, if you haven't done that, my encouragement is if you've never been saved, be saved. If you're saved and not been baptized, then take the next step of baptism. Okay, I've done both of those. Wonderful. What's next? What is it that the church is supposed to look like? As we assemble which is required, what does this assembly look like? Well, let's consider what after salvation, after baptism, what does it look like? And by the way, this is more than just their church life. This is more than just like, okay, this is what it looks like on Sunday. Although it does involve that, it goes far beyond. This is also what it looks like on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday and through the course of the week. So let's consider this communion of the saints and what does this look like? Well, first of all, and just so you're aware, we're gonna spend the most time on this first point today. We're gonna talk about communion actions, communion actions. We'll get to communion attitudes and then we'll briefly wrap it up with communion aftermath. What comes as a result of? We'll begin with communion actions and again, 
to, to get it fresh in our mind, look once more at verse number 42, Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in, in what? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The actions of this newly birthed church give us some insight into what should be happening in the church today. Whenever we assemble, what's it supposed to look like? And while I do acknowledge some of the unique characteristics of this early assembly, I also recognize that there are elements of this first church that are not exclusive to the time. They are actually expected for all of time. Now, our text says that they continued steadfastly. So before we rush on, if you take notes, there are some things that I would be jotting down about this word steadfastly. It is rich with significance. It means this. Steadfast, it means to adhere, to be devoted to, to be steadfastly attentive unto, to persevere and not to faint, to be in constant readiness, to wait on continually. So the question that we're going to begin with, with this idea of, okay, here's what the church did and they did this steadfastly. Let's start with this question. What are you committed to? What are you committed to? And when we start to answer that question, the answer really lies in what comes first in your life. It helps us understand our commitments. Have you ever had to tell someone no because of a greater commitment? Like, oh, I would love to do this, but I can't. I already have another commitment. And because this commitment is so important, I can't say yes to that because I have a greater commitment. Uh, let's let's um, start to understand the idea this way. How many of you have dads that are really good at packing the car, okay? Okay, they're like, man, they, they are packing stuff everywhere. And in fact, your body has to be contorted sometimes because they got stuff all around. I mean, they're really good at packing the car. Okay, how many of you... You're good at packing the car, but how many of you have ever had to start packing and then unpack and then repack? How many of you have ever had to do that before? Lots of hands. So you got stuff shoved everywhere and it's not going to fit, but you know it's going to fit. And so you unpack it and you repack it with what we might call first things first. And how many of you have ever had to leave something because there was something else more important? So you told your children, I'm sorry, but the dog has to go. Something like... I don't know what it looks like, but you had to leave something behind because there was something of greater importance, something that had to go. Do you know, most of the time what we find is it's all going to fit. It just has to be placed in the right order. When the church gets things out of order, it's, it's interesting that then there are a lot of things that really could fit, but they don't because we've placed them in a wrong um, with wrong priority, in the wrong order. To, to again help us to understand this idea of what's most important, steadfast, and how that's going to pertain to the church. Sometimes we, we even misprioritize things in our lives. I'm not speaking specifically to church, but just in our lives. We could ask the question, are children important? And the answer is, of course they are. Are children more important than your marriage relationship? Good question. Do you know, sometimes in our culture today, it wouldn't be surprising for us to hear a statement that went something like this. 
Even one spouse saying to another, well, listen, nothing's going to get in the way of me and my children. There's something wonderfully healthy that an environment uh, uh, provides for children when there's something wonderfully healthy about the marriage relationship. When that becomes a first priority, other priorities seem to take on their right significance. For example, when I was a kid, I loved knowing things were really good between dad and mom. In fact, watching my dad come in from outside, maybe he was working in the yard or we had an old basketball court out back and we'd play a lot of basketball back there. And my dad would come in and my dad knows how to sweat. So my dad would come in, he'd be soaking wet and he'd see my mom and he'd say, Joanne. And she'd say, no, sir. And he'd say, come here and give me a hug. She says, not on your life. And then I'd watch my dad chase my mom around the house. And, and as a kid, we loved it. Now, now, why is that so healthy, so to speak, for kids? Because when kids knew that things were right between dad and mom, there was something really right for us. Now, what if things are tense between dad and mom, but right between parent and child? Still, there's some uncertainty because it's not first things first. I say all of that to say within the church, there is something right about understanding first things first. So what is it when we think about their steadfastness? What did this church see as most important? And then demonstrated the importance by their steadfastness, their commitment to something with an unwavering attachment. Well, they were steadfast in four things. This is all under this communion actions. What does it look like? Well, first, doctrine. Doctrine. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, sometimes we attach some, some yawn immediately to the word doctrine, but, but may it never be so. Doctrine, this is the teachings of scripture. This is how we're gonna live our lives. This is how we'll order our steps. This is how the church will know what to do and what not to do. So what is it that the early church says, we're gonna give ourselves to some really important things. We're gonna be steadfast. We're gonna attach ourselves to something with an attachment that cannot be severed. The first thing they attach themselves to is the apostles' doctrine. The teaching and preaching of biblical instruction was the first priority in this newly formed church. Now in all the epistles, precept comes before practice. Experience must always be tested by doctrine, not doctrine by experience. Have you ever had someone say to you something like, well, I don't know what that book says, but I do know what I've experienced. Let me tell you, there may be fewer words that are more dangerous than are those. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the book says, but I'm telling you, I experienced. The Bible tells us that Satan himself presents himself as this angel of light. He is a deceiver and he goes about to deceive. So how am I going to know, is this legitimate for my Christian life? Is this good for the church? Not by my experience. May doctrine always govern and guide my experience, not experience inform my doctrine. 
the only final answer is found in asking the right question, and that is, what does the Bible say? Our culture may change, our preferences vary, our heart may direct us in a myriad of differing directions, but doctrine doesn't change. Moses understood some things about how am I going to actually truly get to know God? I want to know him. How am I going to get to know God? Listen to what Moses said, Exodus 33, verse number 13. Now, therefore, I pray thee, he's speaking to God. If I have found grace in thy sight, listen to this, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. Do you know what Moses is saying? He's saying, God, I want to get to know you. So show me your ways. He doesn't say, Lord, I just want to get to know you better. How's Moses going to get to know God? By God revealing to Moses how he operates, what he does, what he doesn't do. God, if I'm ever going to get to know you, show me now thy ways. The more we know the ways of God as presented in Scripture, the more we know God. The church in Acts chapter 2 was taught by the apostles' doctrine. And the apostles had been taught by Jesus Christ. That doctrine was written down, and you and I have it today. The church cannot operate on truth it is not taught. And believers can't function on principles they have not learned. There are many today that want to utter the phrase, what would Jesus do? But they want to provide the answer found in themselves. The only way you can truly know what would Jesus do is to investigate what he did and know then what did Jesus do. Paul was so deeply committed to the doctrine of the church that he submitted even himself to its supremacy. Now let me say this again. The apostle Paul, the, the one who's responsible for most of the books of the New Testament, the human instrument, the Apostle Paul is so committed to this doctrine that he submits himself to it. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that there's no human agent that has the right to play fast and loose with Bible doctrine. If the Apostle Paul is submitting himself, so must every other human agent submit themselves. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. He said, listen, there's some that are, that are messing around with the doctrine of the gospel. But though we, himself included, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul's not playing around with this. Paul is saying, hold steadfastly with a commitment that is unwavering to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. There is no pastor, no teacher, not even an angel from heaven has the right to alter the doctrine of God. It's the final answer, the single rule for our faith and practice. And by the way, since the Bible has the final answer, what kind of questions should we be asking? Now, I want you to think for just a moment, what questions should you be asking? 
what should I be asking? I just started writing down a, a, a sampling of questions and quite frankly, I had to stop because I could have just gone on and on and on. How did we get here? How was the universe created? Does it matter who I marry? What can I do physically with another person before marriage? How should a Christian view his word, for example, toward a contract? Should I tithe on my income? Does the Bible speak about church membership? Are men and women created equally? Does God care how we identify regarding gender? Does God approve of same-sex relationships? Can I be forgiven of any kind of sin? Why do I feel guilty? Does Satan really exist? What do I do if I've fallen morally? Why did bad things happen to me? Is there an answer to my bitterness? And on and on and on we could go. Let me ask you, what questions do you have? We have questions the Bible truly does have answers. And what the early church did is they said, okay, we, we've, got to, we've got to find out what is the doctrine, the teaching of church, because it's going to have ramifications on how I live my life. I know all of us have desires. We have preferences. We have things that we like, things that we don't like. How do I inform those likes and dislikes, the way I'm going to live my life? How do I inform those as it pertains to doctrine? Do, do I actually strive to make my doctrine fit my life, which never works, which, which is never sanctioned in scripture? It's never the way that a person is instructed to figure out, figure out what works for you and then make the Bible fit. Or are we gonna ask the question, what does the Bible say? And now God, would you transform me into something other than myself? Make me like Jesus as opposed to me trying to make Jesus like myself. So what did they do? Well, in Acts chapter two, what were they attaching themselves to first? That is doctrine. And what did they find? Answers. If you have questions, the Bible does have answers. Okay, let's look a little bit further and, and take this another step. The first thing that they did, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship. Francis Schaeffer once wrote the following. Without true Christians loving one another, Christ said the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give proper answers. What's Schaefer saying? Schaefer's saying, hey, listen, people are watching us. People are looking at the church. And if there's no right fellowship, and the basis for that is what we sometimes refer to as agape, this heaven-sent love. If there's no right fellowship, no love, a watching world has no expectation to believe that what we present is true. Jesus said it this way. In John 13, 35, he said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one toward another. He's saying, listen, the right kind of fellowship, where does this begin? With a right love for each other. Fellowship in the early church happened naturally, organically as the early church gathered. Remember the word church, it's the word, the Greek word ekklesia. It means a called out assembly. 
So that as the church gathered, they naturally fellowshiped. They did so with Christ at the center and they found him as their focus. This is what their fellowship, where it begins, where it finds its centerpiece, the person of Jesus Christ. The church would gather, they'd assemble. What are they all looking at? Well, who are they all looking at? They're looking at Jesus. Now, this may be rather obvious, but it shouldn't be left unsaid. The church must physically assemble to fully enjoy this kind of fellowship. That's the word koinonia again in the Greek. For the church to enjoy that koinonia kind of fellowship, what's one of the priorities? Well, physically assembling with the body of believers. One commentary said it this way. For a Christian to fail to participate in the life of a local church is inexcusable. In fact, those who choose to isolate themselves are disobedient to the direct command of scripture. That's a very direct statement, but he's attaching that to the direct commands of scripture. You may say, well, what scripture is that? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul uses this little expression. Now he's gonna go on and correct the church, but he uses the expression, when ye come together. And then he goes on and he says, all right, you're doing this and this and this. And then he essentially says, cut it out. And this is what you're supposed to be doing when ye come together. I, I pull out that little phrase because it's just the natural understanding the natural expectation that when you come together. John Wesley once stated, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christianity. Wow, he's saying that the body of believers is expected to function exactly as we just said, as a body of believers. In 1 John 1, 7, the Bible records, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have, here's our word again, fellowship one with another. When we come to the light of Jesus Christ and walk in him, the natural response is koinonia fellowship. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. Romans 12, 5 says it this way. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. I, I have this special childhood memory and I'm sure you have several as well, but this is connected to church. So I, I grew up going to a church in Michigan and, and I, can, I can see this in my mind as clearly as if it were yesterday and, and it was a lot of yesterdays ago. I picture it like a, a hot summer Michigan day. Now this was before our church even thought about an air conditioned auditorium. And there would be many of us gathered around. In fact, the, the air conditioning for most churches when I was a kid what, looked something like this. It was a church bulletin. So everybody had their bulletin out and they're doing this in the service and, and, um, and then it was a Sunday night. We'd always close the day with this. We didn't normally sing it on Sunday morning, but every Sunday night, I mean, every Sunday night, and there was something, 
that resonated with me, even as a child, like this is special. It's important. It, it didn't just mean, now maybe there was something in my, in my mind that was saying, hey, we're about done with church. So I'm acknowledging that might've been some of the specialness of the song, but we would sing, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. And for a little kid on a hot summer Michigan evening to listen to a church sing with some meaning and significant, there's something special they're singing about our fellowship. Blessed be this, this united tie that we share together. There's something that binds us together. In fun fashion, we used to sing with kids and with teenagers, bind us together, Lord. And we'd have fun motions and actions that we'd connect to the song. But, but more than the fun of an action song was the reality of the truth. There is something that Christians share in fellowship, in common, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. There is something this early church understood is a priority. It's not just like, okay, what kind of fellowships do you have? We're not talking about an event. We're actually talking about a body that is functioning well together. There is koinonia, what we all share in common. One of the early signs of spiritual sickness is division in the church body. This church was steadfast in their commitment to protecting their spiritual fellowship. We don't have time to explore this, but as you go further into the book of Acts, you start to see problems arise. There are some issues as it pertains to the care of the widows. Well, do you know what's happening? Now, it's not that those things don't have to be addressed, but their fellowship was broken. Why? Because now they're starting to look at the care of the widows as something that has their attention in ways that has diverted their attention from Jesus Christ. I would submit it could happen concurrently. But some were so frustrated, so bothered that Jesus now becomes a secondary focus and the problem becomes the first. We go later on in the book of Acts and now we start to get into some of what we refer to as secondary issues. Now the, the Jews and the Gentiles, they're having some issues, some collisions. We don't like what the Gentiles are bringing in. And the Gentiles are saying, you're the ones who actually brought it in and division in the church. Where's this coming from? It's coming from lesser issues and a diversion of a primary first focus on the person of Jesus Christ. So what do they give themselves to? What are they steadfast in? Well, steadfast in doctrine, steadfast in fellowship. And then just to, to mention briefly, the, the, in breaking of bread, breaking of bread. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread now, I believe that the normal meal that, that you'd talk about, hey, come on over for a meal, would be included under what we covered as in fellowship. But here it seems this is a reference to what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. Or sometimes we call it a good word, communion. They were obeying what Jesus said to do in remembrance of him, which was a regular remembering of Christ that was his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed as the final sacrifice for the remission of sin. And then the fourth thing they had fellowship around was prayers. 
the church prayed and they continued steadfastly in prayers. Now, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't say, now pray like this. He didn't say, um, my father. You can say, because he is your father, but he taught his disciples to pray, our father. There's even some communal aspect that Jesus is giving us in this model prayer when his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Our father, the one we share together. There is a... um, There's a theologian from days gone by who applied the the truths of prayer in some very practical ways. Listen to what he said. It's a rather long quote, but I'd like you to read it with me. In your mind, I'll read it, of course, out loud. In prayer, I am not alone. I am one with the members of God's family, which is also my family. My weak prayer is caught up into the great stream of prayer that goes up forever from God's family. The strength of my prayer is that it is not simply mine. That the moment I fall upon my knees, I am no longer an individual man or woman talking to God, but a member of the family of God. On my knees, I cannot be alone. My prayer, as weak, as feeble, as helpless as it is, is organically united with the prayers of the whole church. We are all members of one body. We belong to an association for intercessory prayer. What beautiful thinking this is regarding what happens when a member of the body prays. He is joining together one of the singular strands of prayers offered up before God. And now we're offering this band of prayers, the strength of our prayers together as a church before Almighty God. One man said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. The early church took the matter of prayer seriously because they knew the wonderful gift of resource and power and fellowship that they'd been given. Clearly, we would be wise to do the same. Now, I'm gonna mention these last two because they're important and worth mentioning. But you know, the first thing that we see in this passage is communion actions. But you also see the result of this, it's communion attitudes. Look again at verse number 46. It's a little bit further down in your passage. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There's something wonderful about those two words, one accord. Now it's a compound word in the Greek. It's the word homothumidon, homothumidon. We might translate the word like this. We might say that it is harmonious, harmonious. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying there's something about this early church that their attitude is just simply this song. There is a harmony about how they interact one with another. Uh, Let's see, I'm gonna just ask Dr. Peter Levitt. I'm not sure where you are. You're over there. Yeah, come join us really quickly at the piano as we wrap up these thoughts today. And I didn't, give the, uh, I didn't give the orchestra a real heads up on this, but how about the orchestra? Um, why don't you grab your instruments? You guys, I just wanna make sure that you're, you're paying attention back there. So 
Let's include the orchestra. Hey, uh, hymn number, do you have hymn books back there? Hymn number 38, okay? Hymn number 38. So take that one. And then uh, Mr. Kanata, you're here with us. He is the one who conducts our Rejoice Orchestra. Let's do this. Hey, uh, blessed be the, uh, no, no, not blessed be the type. Blessed be the name. Is that what you have? 38? Will you just play the, um, the melody, like one finger melody? Can you do that with one finger? Okay, that's, that's it right there. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Okay, and he has a doctorate, okay. <laughs> okay, hey, um, let's, let's see here. Just play, the, uh, just play the notes that are written on the page. Don't play anything else. Good, very good. Okay, that's nice. Let's add a little orchestra. Um, you just play like really simple, basic things. And then, um, <laughs> Mr. Kanata, let's have the, uh, the harmony part start. Who's going to, what's, what's the harmony part? Like the, um, I don't know, some of the, yeah, the big instruments over there. Yes, those. <laughs> let's, uh, let's play a little harmony right now, along with the basics, okay? Okay, that's nice. Now let's do this. Let's just have the uh, let's just have the violins. Only violins, no piano. Let's just see what the violins have to offer today. Okay, violins. Okay, hey, that's nice. Now we haven't thought about this, but. This is, let's just try this, okay? I don't even know if this is good to do. All right, but let's try this. Would you, is it possible, could I ask you to like make your instrument not in tune? Yeah, just kind of go ahead and, and turn the little knobby things. And yeah, so not in tune. How many of you have children taking violin? Yes. And you say, there sounds like that all the time. Okay, so, okay, you got it? I just want to hear the violins now. Play it so we can hear it. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I want you to, yeah, just you play. Uh, why don't you play with the piano? You too play. Just the basics, melody. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Now let's, let's add it with the... Um, Let's add it with everybody. Let's do the whole thing. So go ahead and play on. And let's see what that does to us. Now. Okay, let's cut it right there. You know, one wonderful thing, and we, we didn't really plan this, but one wonderful thing is um, a lot of right notes cover up wrong notes. Like those that are out of tune. If you're in tune and there's a lot of you, it actually kind of hides those that are not. There's something, there's something beautiful in the illustration of, now when you were just playing by yourself, by the way, when you're out of tune, it's fairly obvious, okay? But you know what it says, one accord? That 
that idea is like there's something of harmony in the church. We're, we're offering this song by our lives. He goes on and he says, with singleness of heart. Do you know how they define this word, the Greek word? It's, it was interesting to me. It's, it's actually defined what it is by a negative. He said, okay, with singleness of heart, he says, this is what it's not. It's not stony ground. With singleness of heart, like, oh, with this, with this smooth path, because there's nothing to trip you up. How many people have been tripped up in the church? Like they stumble over this and then this action took place. But now because there's this harmony in the church, because there's this this community communal attitude. Yeah, there, there, there were these, you know, communion actions but now their attitude is reflected and, and there's this harmony and, and the, the way is smooth and people aren't stumbling over this action and, and this inappropriate focus and, and I'm bothered about and, and it doesn't please me. It's like, no, 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 no. I came to focus my attention on Jesus. And, and then the way he wraps this whole thing up is this, this communion aftermath. What's the result of this kind of living? The, the beautiful aftermath, they, they didn't have to do anything. This was just the result of Acts 2.47, praising God. This is natural. Lord, when we come together and, and our focus is on Jesus, what else can we do but praise you? Praising God and having favor with all the people. And then look at this aftermath. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. How, how did this impact their community? The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The questions that have to be asked today would be, are my communion actions similar to the early church? When I come to church, am I more concerned about how doctrine is going to apply to my life or am I trying to see if my life fits this doctrine? Could my communion attitude be defined by the words one accord and harmonious? And if we want to have the communion aftermath, we must have the communion actions and attitudes. May we confess to God where we don't align with him and rather than attempting to change the unchanging one, to line up with us, let's ask him to change us to line up with him.